And this saying, the only constant is change, comes from a Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, who was known as the dark philosopher of ancient Greece, and he lived before Socrates. He was very strange and hard to understand, and near the end of his life, he lived in isolation in the mountains. When he was dying, he was still telling his doctors riddles when he came to the town for treatment, and so they couldn't fully help him. He was just a strange person, and he was very different. And he felt like most people lived their whole life asleep, and he was only interested in awakening pretty much like an outcast, and so people didn't really know what to make of him. And you'll find a lot of uh, discrepancy among whether or not he was even a wise person or not. But he had this saying, the only constant is change, and it comes from more than uh, 500 years uh, before Christ, so around the time of the Buddha. And you can find some parallels between what Heraclitus says in regards to the only constant change and things the Buddha was teaching and also some of the teachings of Taoism in China, of Lao Tzu, uh, a wise sage from ancient times. And I, I think it's interesting sometimes when I do this study of history and philosophy to see how ideas are emerging in different parts of the world simultaneously, especially before there was good communication. There's an author, uh, Rupert Sheldrake, who in a book talks about this, um, this experiment that is not necessarily true, but is more of an idea of this collective unconscious. There was an island in Japan where some researchers taught some of the monkeys how to wash sweet potatoes in the sea to get some of the grains of sand off it before they ate it. And after they learned this, they were teaching, the monkeys were teaching their families. They were teaching their children. But he noticed that it was a struggle for some of the older monkeys to adapt to this. But when the number reached 100, when 100 monkeys on this particular island were washing their sweet potatoes in that way, then monkeys on isolated separate islands started to wash the sweet potato in the same manner. Most scientists say that this is not possible, but, but it's uh, more of a concept uh, called the hundredth monkey effect, which means that when there's enough of a good idea that it can spread even through un unknown means. So anyways, I noticed this with, with Heraclitus and this other statement, you cannot step into the same river twice. Why can you not step in the same river twice? Because it's always flowing. Every moment, it's a whole new set of water, right? But we call it the same thing. So that's just an idea, that's not the reality. And is that not the same with so many other things? We're not the same person moment to moment. I'm, I'm already different. It may not be obvious, just as it's not obvious that it's a different river. Looks like it's the same place. We call it the same name, the DuPage, you know, but it's completely different water in every moment. Heraclitus influenced some other thinkers like Socrates, and then Socrates influenced some other thinkers, including Plato, 
And then after 100 AD came a man named Epictetus. When people talk about Stoicism in history, they, they mostly talk about Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor of Rome after Epictetus. They mention Socrates, and they also talk about another Roman philosopher named Seneca. But Epictetus is a little less known and less celebrated. However, we have a book of the direct instructions about Stoicism from Epictetus. So I brought that tonight because it is a very systematic manual, and it's called the manual. <laughs> Since Heraclitus is very mysterious and there are only fragments of his sayings, it's very difficult to speak about him. But Epictetus refers to him from time to time in his instructions. Epictetus was born, like I said, 100 and maybe 35 or so AD. He was born as a slave. And I believe it took until maybe around 20, 25 years old before he obtained his freedom. And then he started to teach. And after teaching for some time, with the dawn of a, of a new regime, he was cast out of Athens and made his way to Rome. And a student of his named Arian wrote down his teachings into the manual. And the manual existed after Epictetus and made its way to Marcus Aurelius, the future emperor of Rome, who wrote a book called Meditations. And Meditations is inspired by this idea of Stoicism. And Stoicism and the philosophy that Epictetus was teaching was not a theory. We have many European philosophers up until the present day that write books and it's all ideas, sometimes very beautiful ideas. But Epictetus had lived some of the harshest types of human conditions and found this inner equanimity. And so his main point in his teachings are that the philosopher is one who is living, living the art. So it is the art of living. And philosophy is not something just to be talked about. He's talking about it to his students, giving them instructions. But it is something to be lived. And by understanding the principles and applying them to your life, you prepare yourself for the realities that we're talking about so that when certain shifts happen, the Stoic appears to be enduring. But the Stoic philosopher has already prepared his field for that state of mind. So they're not really doing any work at the time of difficulty because they're already engaged in the art of living, which is flowing with change. So. Heraclitus had a couple fragmented sayings like the way up is the same as the way down. Very similar to what Lao Tzu said. Whether you're going up the ladder or down the ladder, you're not balanced. You could fall. So uh, if you think of the piano and the notes in a scale, wherever you start, say you start on A and you climb the scale, you come back to A. Whether you're going up or going down, you come back. So whether you're going up or whether you're going down, it all leads to the same place. 
And that was very mysterious at the time. Let's dive in. This first instruction really sort of summarizes the whole philosophy. And everything else I'd say that comes after it is just to give more insight on the same concept. There are things that are within our power and things that fall outside our power. Within our power are our own opinions, aims, desires, dislikes, in some, our own thoughts and actions. Outside our power are our physical characteristics, the class into which we are born, our reputation in the eyes of others, and honors and offices that may be bestowed on us. Working within our sphere of control, we are naturally free, independent, and strong. Beyond that sphere, we are weak, limited, and dependent. If you pin your hopes on things outside your control, taking upon yourself things which rightfully belong to others, you are liable to stumble, fall, suffer, and blame both gods and men. But if you focus your attention only on what is truly your own concern and leave to others what concerns them, then you will be in charge of your interior life. No one will be able to harm or hinder you. You will blame no one and have no enemies. If you wish to have peace and contentment, release your attachment to all things outside your control. This is the path of freedom and happiness. If you want not just peace and contentment, but power and wealth too, you may forfeit the former in seeking the latter and will lose your freedom and happiness along the way. Whenever distress or displeasure arises in your mind, remind yourself, this is only my interpretation, not reality itself. Then ask whether it falls within or outside your sphere of power, and if it is beyond your power to control, let it go. So that's pretty powerful stuff. I remember reading Warren Buffett talks about a sphere of competence and says, if you go outside of that sphere, you're going to be in trouble in life, in work. So try to, and that sphere may be very small, but try to operate within that sphere. Epictetus is talking about sphere of control. And he says, it's our interpretation, our interpretation of what's happening to us. Even tonight, we all have different interpretations, right, of what change means, and it affects us in different ways. For example, we may say the absence of somebody is causing us pain, but it's not really the absence of somebody, it's the love and affection we have for that person that causes us pain. Not that love and affection is wrong, just that there's absences everywhere and they're not all causing us pain. And people in our life, people we know, people we don't know, many absences. And again, not that this is right or wrong, just understanding the way the mind works. I was telling somebody today that, and this kind of builds off of our previous discussion about time, that we can treat the past as if it's just a dream. So much of what we suffer now is our idea about the past, which is our memory. And therefore, we can compare what is it like now compared to what it was like before. And I say it's like a dream because they're both gone in terms of our present experience. And people may say, well, you know, the past has real consequences. Well, so does a dream. 
If I wake up from a dream and I was being chased, I'm probably sweating and I'm disturbed. Sometimes people are upset the whole day because of their dreams. So there's real consequences. And both in the mind afterwards are just a story. So I have two arms. Everybody here has two arms. I could have two arms because in the past I was born to a mother and like all humans, I can be born with two arms. Or I have two arms because I was born with four arms and a dragon bit off the other two. And here I am left with two, a miserable condition to be in, having lost my other two arms. You see, so the past is a story. And, and you may say, well, but right now I'm limited. Yeah, but you're limited and that's the present reality. But why you're limited is a story. And we're all limited. Everybody's not. Like I said, I don't have an extra two arms, which I could have used when I'm bringing all the stuff over for tonight and balancing it on my shoulder and everything. If I knew everyone else had four arms at that moment, I would be suffering greatly emotionally, not just struggling to balance stuff, but I would be emotionally in turmoil. So keep that in mind that it is the interpretation about whatever the limitations are to our sphere of power. In the past, we've talked about desire. Uh, this is one of the four noble truths that desire leads to suffering, and, and that's in uh, Buddhist um, teachings. And we've also talked about likes and dislikes. We've said that, you know, when you have a lot of likes, you want those things. And when you have dislikes, you want to get away from those things. When you lose what you like, you suffer. When you get what you don't like, you suffer. So we talked about reducing likes and dislikes, having a little bit more neutral mind. So I'm not grasping for things outside of my sphere and power. And I'm not um, trying to avoid things that could come into my sphere of power. But Epictetus puts this a little more beautifully and practically. So it's not an easy thing to just give up likes and dislikes. We all have our preferences, but he guides people towards the step of well, at least look at what's within your sphere of power that you like and dislike. So this next one is about desire. Desire demands the attainment of that which you desire. Well, think about that for a moment. Pause the quote there. Desire demands the attainment of that which you desire. It's not like a desire can come to you and go, oh, that's nice. It just, it grows, you know, and it says, how could we get it? Maybe I got to save, you know, maybe I got to sell something or maybe I can borrow or maybe this person can help me get it. And all of a sudden, all those thoughts are going towards something that is not in the here and now. Okay, so it can be a trap. It's not that we never need things or use things, but to go too far outside of the sphere of power can create trouble. Desire demands the attainment of that which you desire and aversion demands the avoidance of that which you dislike. Those who fail to attain their desires are disappointed. Those who attain what they dislike are distressed. If you avoid only those undesirable things which are within your control, you will never suffer by attaining something you detest. But if you try to avoid what you can, cannot control, sickness, poverty, death, you will inflict useless mental suffering upon yourself. End the habit of despising things that are not within your power 
and apply your aversion to things that are within your power. So I'll pause there for a moment. Surely we can avoid things that are within our power. We can think about certain things. We can dwell on certain things. That's within our power. But if we avoid that and certain behaviors and certain choices, those are all within our power. We can avoid certain things that are within our sphere of control. And by doing that, there's no struggle. But if we try to avoid things that are outside of the sphere of our control, then we struggle. There are some things that we cannot control, but trying to avoid them will only create turmoil. As for desire, for now it is best to avoid it. Those new to this philosophy must first secure their sphere of power before they can discern what is worthy of desire. For if you desire things not within your power, you will suffer disappointment. When practical necessity demands that you desire or avoid something external, at work for instance, act with steady deliberation, not with hasty strain. So he's not saying you don't need things. He's just saying when you hanker for things outside of your power, that becomes consuming and creates a fire. By trying to quench the desire, you put fuel to put out the fire, and so, or you put leaves on the fire. So the fire disappears and it's smoldering for a little bit, but then it returns and it's stronger. So there's no end to desire by feeding desire. So we want to be careful of that. But again, this doesn't mean that we don't have necessities and that there isn't things like food, drink, shelter, connection that are important. It's the, it's the hankering for them that creates trouble. Thirdly, what of things, objects, and beings that delight, delight your mind are of good practical use or which you dearly love? Remind yourself of their true nature, beginning with the smallest trifle and working upward. If you have a favorite cup, Remember that it is only a cup that you prefer. If it is broken, you can bear it. When you embrace your spouse or child, remember that they are mortal beings. By accepting their nature rather than denying it, if either of them should pass, you, you can find the strength to bear it. This one's interesting, and it's about acquainting yourself more deeply with the possibilities of life. In preparing for any action, remind yourself of the nature of the action. For instance, if you are going to a public pool, remind yourself of the usual incidents. People splashing, some pushing, some scolding. Thieves may steal unguarded personal belongings. You will not be disturbed if you go into the experience prepared for such things and determined to retain inner harmony. If something undesirable happens, you will be able to say, my desire is not only to swim, but to remain in harmony with the nature of things. I cannot stay in harmony if I let myself become upset by things beyond my control. And so it is with every act or experience. So the responsibility is to inner harmony, not to things outside of our control, staying the way that we would like them. And I think if people experiment with this, you may find, oh, wow, I do have that power over my attitude about such things. And we get stuck on them as if it could have been different. And sometimes we get stuck thinking, I shouldn't have done this, 
or I shouldn't have left my things out or whatever. But those are all, all possibilities. And um, staying balanced is more important than trying to control things beyond your control. And a little bit of this next one, and I'll skim through some more, but people are not disturbed by things themselves, but by the views they take of those things. Even death is nothing to fear in itself, or Socrates would have run from it. The fear of death stems from the view that it is fearful. When you are feeling upset, angry, or sad, don't blame another for your state of mind. Think of your condition as also the result of your own opinions and interpretations. People who do not know this philosophy blame others for their misfortunes. Those who are beginning to learn this art of living blame themselves. Those who have mastered this philosophy blame no one. So sometimes, that's the end of that quote, sometimes we talk in assertiveness training and in, um, in workshops or in the hospital or in therapy that blame is not assertive. But a lot of times people think they're being assertive when they confront somebody to address a problem and say what they did to them. You pissed me off. It sounds like I'm being assertive, I'm being honest, and I'm telling this person what they did. But blame actually falls under aggression, not assertiveness. Why? Because people cannot make us feel any particular way. Someone may have taken my money, stolen my money, but that they made me unhappy is not true. So we don't want to blame other people for the way that we feel. And in that, that means in, in that way that we have to try owning the feeling when we communicate. I feel upset. I feel lonely. So in relationships, it's much easier to say, you didn't call, you don't care about anybody but yourself, and feel like I'm dealing with this. It's not so easy, or not so obvious, I should say, to open up and say, I feel scared when I don't hear from you, or I feel lonely when I don't see you for more than a week. And then ask for what you want, which is within your sphere of power. I can own my feelings and ask for what I want, but I don't really have the right to blame people for how I feel because when I do that, I'm saying, you piss me off, then doesn't that mean that they have to fix it? If you're the one who did this to me, my feeling, if you're the one who created this feeling in me, then I don't have the power to change it. So that's not stoic. That's saying you got to do something. And the danger here really is that they might they might actually uh, change to accommodate what you're saying. But you know what that's gonna do? That's gonna reinforce the notion that I get better when people, you know, change, do what I want them to do. And so then I'm gonna fall into that pattern where, well, I remember when I was really upset and I couldn't be happy until we got this figured out. Imagine that, I'm upset, something's going wrong in my relationship, but I step back and I meditate and I let go of my interpretations and now I'm not upset anymore, but there's still a problem. So now I can communicate in a whole new way because I don't need you to change for me to be peaceful again, but there may still be a problem. 
Just like if you ever see the Dalai Lama talking, he always looks so happy and joyful. But he's dealing with all kinds of problems. That's why he's talking. He's trying to make the world a more peaceful place and educate people about the, the story of Tibet and uh, you know, the loss of, of the, their home and way of life and everything. But he doesn't have to do it to make himself happy. That's a big difference. So you can connect with your inner peace and then try to deal with your problems. And sometimes, in my personal experience, I found I actually don't have a problem to solve anymore. The problem was simply that I was imbalanced. And if I'm not imbalanced anymore, oftentimes I really don't care if you understand me or not, or if this person changes or not, or if this person gives me my money back or not or if they fix my order at the restaurant or not, because I'm not unhappy anymore. So experiment with that. We can practice taking satisfaction in living well. Living well means according to your values, like assertiveness. Not when the outcomes are favorable, because outcomes are outside of our sphere of control. I could be a so-called perfect parent, but I do not get any guarantee that the outcomes all work out for my children, if I had children, right? So that's outside of my sphere of control. But I can take inner satisfaction knowing that that is, my response is in alignment with my core values and the authenticity can be the reward. So people often do not feel satisfaction in that because they're fixated, again, the desire is outside of the sphere of power. And you may get things sometimes that are outside of your sphere of power, but when that becomes an endless pattern of fixating only outside of the circle, then we struggle. You're giving your power to the other, and you're not empowering yourself, you're empowering them, and also burdening them. Because I don't want the burden of, of your happiness. That's, that needs to be the individual's responsibility. And so when I'm blaming others, I'm giving them power, but I'm also putting the responsibility for my happiness onto them. And when I give up that responsibility, then of course I feel weaker. So we want to be mindful of that, to try not to fall into that trap where we need somebody to think differently, behave differently, or act differently before we can reconnect with what is always there. Inner peace is always there. I mean, how can we say it's not always there? Because if you think about it, when you go to sleep at night, if you go to sleep, and you go into deep sleep, are we not peaceful? Not dreaming, that's not always peaceful. <laughs> but in deep sleep, there's calmness. Even if we have pain, and even if, uh, I'm saying physical pain, even if the body's sick, in deep sleep we're not sick. Even if there's trouble in the relationships, in deep sleep, there's no trouble in the relationships. So the peace that comes when you're in deep sleep is not earned. It's not like I settled everything outside of my sphere of power. No, that's just when you stop thinking about it. So I would say that if, when you're in deep sleep, if it was a very miserable experience, then none of this would be true and would not make any sense. Since we know that when we let go of those interpretations, the end result is calmness and peace, or when we're in meditation and the mind becomes a lot calmer, we naturally feel more stillness, uh, more equanimity, 
and it's not because of external circumstances. So that, that is some evidence for the idea that we already have inner peace, so why pretend that it's controlled by somebody or something outside of our sphere of power? During a voyage, when the ship is anchored and you go ashore for supplies, you may amuse yourself with picking up some seashells and pretty stones along your way. But keep your thoughts tuned on the ship, remaining alert for the captain's call. You may need to drop your treasures and run back to the boat at any time. Likewise in life, remain steadfast in pursuing your mission, always willing to shed distractions. I think that's beautiful. So to me, what do you, this ship that's anchored somewhere means what? Your goal. And also where we came from, wherever that mystical place is. And we got to go back at any time. We're here running around, collecting things. And it's really like uh, a glorified vacation, you know? Our time on Earth, I mean. And at any time, he's saying, the captain calls you back to the ship. And what do you got to do? You got to drop everything and run back. If you were on vacation for two weeks in some other part of the world, what would be your goal there? Would you try to build enterprise there? Would you try to find treasure? Would you try to um, buy a whole bunch of things and travel with all of them? Would you take all your possessions with you? We would just probably be enjoying the experience. But in a way, the whole life is like a holiday. You know, you, 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 you really just want to make it meaningful. But because it seems like it's longer than it is, we start building things and collecting things and getting attached to things, and then it's time to move on, and we don't want it. We don't want that. We're not ready. Once there was a, an American who went to see a sage in India who lived in a hut or a cave. When he saw the conditions, he was surprised at just how simple it was. There was just a mat where he slept and maybe one pot and one bowl for food. And he comments to the sage, he said, it's, it's so simple here and um, it's peaceful. And so the sage says, well, what is it like for you in your home? Well, you know, in America we have lots of things. We have a car and I have a refrigerator where I keep more food and tables and chairs and just a lot. And he's like, well, I've never seen some of those things. Can you show me? And the man says, no, I mean, it's in my home. I don't have it with me. He's like, so why, why didn't you bring it here to show me? <laughs> I don't want to, I'm not going to bring all my furniture <laughs> across the ocean. To... And he's like, why not? like, because I want to travel light. And then the sage says, I also want to travel light. I'm just on vacation. And so I don't burden myself with more than I need. So it's a neat little story about this voyage that we're on. This one is the shortest uh, instruction, but probably the most powerful or, or I think most recognizable for people who have studied Stoic philosophy. Do not wish that all things will go well with you, but that you will go well with all things. That means that I will be able to flow, that I can grow 
And of course, we don't start out there, you know, we, we learn from our pain, we learn from our suffering, we learn from our attachments, we learn from our heartache, we learn from our sickness, we learn about impermanence over time. And, and it's okay to, to pray for the ability to get better at adapting and flowing with whatever comes. Do not say of anything, I have lost it, but rather, I have given it back. Has your spouse died? You've given her back or him back. Has your child died? You've given your child back. Have you lost your home? You've given it back. But, you may retort, a bad person took it. It's not your concern by what means something returns to the source from which it came. For as long as the source entrusts something to your hands, treat it as something borrowed, like a traveler at an inn. It's beautiful. As long as something is entrusted. And that's really different than what we're taught culturally, right? Like we're kind of culturally conditioned and we use the language, my son, my wife, means they belong to me, but this is about cultivating the attitude of stewardship, which means I'm the steward of this space. I'm even the steward of my own body. It's not my, my body because I don't get to decide when it's all done. If it were up to me, I, you know, I'll stay longer than I, than I get to stay. So I'm the steward and I don't know when, uh, when the, the time's up. As you travel the path of philosophy, be content to be considered plain or even foolish. Don't strive to be celebrated for anything. If you are praised by others, be skeptical of yourself. I got to practice this a lot right now. <laughs> for it is no easy feat to hold on to your inner harmony while collecting accolades. When grasping for one, you're likely to drop the other. <laughs> it's really interesting. So again, it just means don't hanker after these things. It may happen, but know that the primary responsibility is to hold on to your inner harmony. And so it can really lead one outside of his or her sphere of power because what other people think outside of your sphere of power. And if you're built up because, oh, people are appreciating me here, then when that changes, I've built my happiness upon something outside of my circle. And now I'm setting myself up for trouble in the future. Prior to Shakespeare, he said, think of life as a play and yourself as an actor. Your role and time on stage is up to the author's choosing. Whether you are cast as a pauper, a cripple, a congressman, or a king, play your part to the best of your ability. You cannot choose the era, nationality, family, and body into which you are born. But to act well in your given role, this is your sphere of power. You know, so now I tell people all the world is a symphony and we're the players. 
Shakespeare called it a stage. Since I'm a musician, I say it's a symphony. And our job is to get into harmony with the whole. So you cannot choose the era. This is interesting to me. You know, sometimes people say, you, you should have been born in the 60s or whatever era it may have been, or you should have lived in the 60s. Um, or people ask each other, if you could live in any era, and people pick different eras, right? But sometimes when I look at uh, like architecture, for instance, of the different eras, you can find something exquisite in every era, right? Like go every hundred years, some, there's some something beautiful was made. Like the, the pyramids of Egypt or the pyramids of Mexico. And they didn't have what we have. But they're not thinking about that because they don't know what they don't have. Right? So it doesn't stop them from making something truly beautiful. So in every era, they had enough to make something beautiful. And we're not burdened by what is not existing yet in the future. Oh, I don't have power tools. We can't make something beautiful. And I'm not advocating for whatever destructive ways they build things. I'm just simply saying that um, whatever we do have is enough in any era, any time to make something beautiful with our life, with our words, with our relationships, and in our own homes. Some, somebody said that in modern times, we know more and more about less and less. I mean, there's a couple different kinds of knowledge. There's just, there's the knowledge of things which has no end. You keep learning about more, more things. And uh, then there's self-knowledge, like Socrates is talking about, know, your, know thyself, which means how does the mind work? How to be happy? That doesn't change in any era, yet very few people know that or, or seek that understanding. So, you know, that's why we can take a book like this and it seems to fully apply to life today, you know, because wisdom. There is knowledge, which is like you, we hear this, we learn something. Then there is applied knowledge Applied knowledge means, okay, I am experimenting now with these concepts. And then there's wisdom, which means I've lived it. I live it now. So wisdom is the lived knowledge. And it has uh, words that sound very similar in other languages, ancient languages, because knowledge, applied knowledge, and wisdom are like three stages of evolution for the mind. Speaking of desires, the other philosopher that I mentioned, Seneca, a Roman philosopher, said that in regards to time and desire, that humans are like mortals in all that they fear and immortals in all that they desire. So many fears but immortals because you desire more things than you can get in a lifetime. Never-ending wants. So try to, to, transform, to transform both of those. Because 
you can do anything, but you can't do everything. That's why it's important to focus on the sphere of what's in your control. Focus on their circle of power. Ten men go on a journey, and when they arrive at their destination, after many trials, the leader starts to do a head count, make sure they're all there, but he only counts nine. So they start to grieve over the tenth person who, who's lost. But he's the tenth person. <laughs> so not realizing the real cause of suffering, the real cause of uh, mental suffering, this man is thinking, grieving over the lost tenth person. The true nature of suffering. We're grieving over something, yes, but it's not what you think it is. Widen your perspective. Go deeper into the reality of change, and you'll see that there really isn't what we think there is. There isn't the things that we think there are. This uh, um, Italian physicist Carlo Rovelli writes in this recent book about time that the universe is not a collection of things. It's a collection of events. So when you even take one thing, one piece of matter, and you go into its basic building block, the atom, the atom, if you uh, exponentially enlarged it to the size of Soldier Field, you would have like an orange in the center. That's the nucleus of the football stadium. And a grain of sand rotating around the perimeter of the stadium. That's the building block of matter. And you go inside of the nucleus and you find that same kind of structure. So where is the thing? And when you keep going and keep going, it's just fields, fields of energy that are interacting. So events are taking place. We call a war a thing, but a war is a sequence of events. And even the life we call a thing, this person, but it's not a thing, it's an event. It's a long event. So the, the human is a long event the mountain is a long event, and some events are short, but it's all events, not so much things, and that's what's supported by science. So in this way, we, be, we become more acquainted with, with the reality ahead of time, and by being curious about that and using that on your inner journey, then people can become Stoics. <laughs>